But it's a blessing to be here. If you don't know me, I'm going to tell you just real quickly something that's critical to understanding. I'm kind of a one-pony ride. I've got one message and one message only, and it's the message of Christ's life in us, our hope of glory. I'm absolutely convinced that there are, as I say every time I preach, two paradigms of Christian living. Paradigm number one is Jesus died for me. He did his part. His part's over. Now it's up to me to live my life for him. And that's the paradigm that most people live out of. Jesus did his part. Now it's my turn to do my part. But there's a second paradigm, which is the biblical paradigm, and has been true from the very beginning, really all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's always been God's intent. The biblical paradigm is Jesus died for me to qualify me so that he could come and live inside of me, not so that I would live my life for him, but so that he could live his life through me as I learn how to cooperate with, surrender to, yield to the power of his life. You know, the Bible says if you seek to find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. Well, that doesn't just mean that we say, well, Jesus did so much for me, it's now up to me to match his sacrifice by me sacrificing and doing a ton of stuff for him. For me to lose my life for him means that I recognize there's a branch to the vine. A branch doesn't have a life apart from the vine. And John chapter 15 tells us that we have been grafted in to Christ. Romans 11 says we were wild olive branches against our nature. We were grafted into a cultivated olive branch and we now share in the life-nourishing sap of the vine. Well, what is a branch to a vine? A branch is a container of the life of the vine. On the branch, fruit shows up, but the branch doesn't produce the fruit. The vine produces the fruit. It shows up on the branch. The branch is where the fruit is born but it's produced by the vine. Well, we are connected by Christ into his life. And as a result, the entirety of our Christian life is about learning how to cooperate with, yield to, surrender to, relinquish control of, and allow his life in us to be expressed through us. And the difference between that paradigm and the paradigm of me thanking the Lord for what he did for me and then making up my mind because of what he did for me, now I've got to go and do my very best for him, is the difference between life and death, between religion and a relationship with Christ, between fulfillment and fruitfulness and barrenness and emptiness. That's why the scripture says that cursed is the man who trusts in man because he'll be like a dried-up, desolate bush in the desert But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, for he'll be like a flourishing plant. Well, by the way, to trust in a man doesn't just mean to trust in another man. It means to trust in this one. Curse is the man who trusts in this guy. If I trust in this guy to produce the life that Christ is calling me to, I've already set myself up for failure. And I'm going to end up as a dried-up, desolate bush. But if I trust in Christ's ability to produce through me a life that I can't produce for him, then I become a flourishing, wonderful, gifted, powerful manifestation of his life by simply getting out of his way and allowing him to live through us. Now, we've been doing a series here called Freedom, 
and, and I felt the Lord lead me to a particular passage of Scripture, and I wanted to lay that as the foundation because everything you're going to hear me talk about comes from that perspective. If you are religious, if you've grown up religious, if you've grown up just in the religion of Christianity, it's possible that you've grown up your whole life believing that what Jesus did is die on the cross for you to kind of give you a new chance to start over, to try harder, and to do better. And so he just basically said, okay, I'm going to take care of what you've done wrong. I'm going to wipe that slate clean. Uh, as I often say, erase all of your Fs, and I'm going to give you an incomplete and give you a chance to start the semester over and do better on your tests. So many people, I'm telling you, I travel around the world. I speak in churches and among ministries. So many people have labored their entire Christian life believing that was the proposition that God offered you is that I'm going to wipe the slate clean, give you a new chance to try harder, to do better. And then when you get to heaven, I'll let you know how you did. But in fact, the entire proposition that Christ offered to us is I am going to forgive your sin, I'm going to cleanse you of sin in order to qualify you for something. What I'm going to qualify for you is to become the temple of my spirit, to become the branch to my vine, to become the treasure chest of my life, so that I can place my life in you and then through you I can express the power of my character, my nature, my power, my gifts, my capacities, my abilities and you were created for that very purpose like a one-of-a-kind instrument like here's a violin and there's a piccolo and here's a bass guitar and there is something else. Each one has the music but they play it completely different. You're completely different, going to be a completely different expression of my life created as a one-of-a-kind masterpiece never to be created before, never to be created again, to be an expression of my life through you. And that's how you find your life, is by relinquishing your life to the power of my life in you. That's why it says again, Galatians 2.20, you'll never hear me preach, you won't hear me say this. You'll see it on my tombstone. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith, not in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the Christian life is not a call for me to live my life for Christ in gratitude for what he did and try and do better this time than I did the first time. The Christian life is the call for me to relinquish my life and allow his life to be expressed through me as I learn to yield, surrender, and capitulate to the power of his life. And the result is when his life is being expressed through me, I actually find that's what I was created for. And that's where my life finds its full fulfillment and fruition is when I become what I was created to be, which is the temple of his spirit, the, the branch to his vine. Now, in light of that, we look here then at 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
We're called to become partakers of his divine nature. What does that mean exactly? Well, first of all, it starts with this idea of righteousness. Righteousness sets the stage. Righteousness in its simplest term, you've heard from a million preachers probably, is to be in right standing with God. But see, a lot of people think that righteousness, notice how he says it there, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, most of us have the tendency to think that righteousness is just sort of, again, God clearing the slate, making everything ready so that we could then now try harder, do better. That we could now become committed to living our life for Christ in the same way that he offered his life for us. And so as a result, we look at righteousness as being sort of the precursor to us now getting a chance to start over and make better grades. And it's true that righteousness is a critical key to the process. But the righteousness that we have, as the Bible says, it's not by works of righteousness, Titus chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, it's according to his mercy that he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's not works that we do that make us righteous. It's the work he did that we put our faith in that then bestows upon us by virtue of our faith his righteousness and gives us a right standing with the Father. Not on the basis of what we did, on the basis of what he did on our behalf. And as a result of what he did on our behalf, we now have a right standing with the Lord that sets the stage for how we can find freedom through this union with his life. So the righteousness that we have is a righteousness that comes as a result of faith. That's what he says. Those who have obtained precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So righteousness is critical because it gives us now a qualification we didn't have before. By the way, if you think you can stand before the Lord on the basis of your own righteousness, you need to understand a few things. The Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. doesn't matter. Paul the Apostle, he said in regards to religiousness, religious ritualness, he was faultless. He came every Easter, he came every Christmas, he belonged to Sunday school, he sang in the choir. All the stuff you have to do to be religious, he did it. And he did it faultlessly. But he said when he found the righteousness that was available to him by faith in what Christ had done for him, instead of the righteousness he'd spent a lifetime laboring to produce by his good works, when he found that righteousness, he looked at what he had trusted in and he said, I realized that it was dung. What I was calling righteousness, I had smeared myself in dung, thinking I was going to be good enough to get myself into heaven by my good works, by my obedience to the ritualistic righteousness that I'd established. But he said, when I saw what was available to me in Christ, he says, I put all of that aside. I considered it uh, uh, less than nothing that I might gain Christ and be found in him as a branch in him. A righteousness that doesn't come as a result of me trying to act good. A righteousness that comes from me being united to the power of his life, being found in him as a branch to the vine. A righteousness that comes by me being literally moved from one condition to another condition, from one place to another place, from one personhood to another personhood. So that I, who was a white olive branch, who was in wrong standing with God, am now cultivated and grafted into a cultivated olive branch, and now I'm in right standing with God. And I didn't do it. What I did is receive what he was offering to me. 
And that righteousness is critical. You have to start there because if you think that by being religious, you're going to make your way to heaven, you're never going to get there. Not because God doesn't want you there, but because there's a critical thing that has to happen. You've got to get out of this old nature into a new nature in Christ. Out of this old relationship to God of rebellion into a relationship to God of being accepted in the beloved. And that movement is critical to understand. Otherwise, we're just the Rotary Club. A lot of good people trying to do good things for a good cause. But this is not the prospect of Christianity. This is not what he offered to us. He offered to us a transformation of an entirely different life. That's why the Bible says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that's why he said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I've come that you might have life, a life you did not have before I came, because I was the only one who had it, and I was the only one who could bestow it upon you. And it only comes by you being grafted into my life. So righteousness is not just about us being better people. Righteousness is about us moving from an old nature to a new nature by being born of the Spirit, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration. And then the second part of that is in the renewing of the Holy Spirit, a renewing that takes place by the basis of the Spirit. So Righteousness sets the stage, but grace and peace establish the terms. Look at what he says there. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. What is grace and peace? Well, grace, grace is what gives us peace. Because grace is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. It's not something we did to get it. It's something he did for us and offered to us. And when we move out of works into grace, you know, I often say that the opposite of faith in theology is not fear. The opposite of faith in theology is works. You see, if I'm operating by works, then I'm doing something in order to obtain something and thinking that I'm going to then earn it, deserve it, and merit it. That's not faith. The opposite of faith is works. Then what is the opposite of works? Theologically, it's faith. It's accepting something I didn't earn, I don't deserve, and I don't merit. It's something that only can be given to me as a gift. And it's not something that I deserve. It's something that he has, out of his extraordinary nature and character, desired to bestow upon me if I'd receive it. So the terms of this righteousness that we have, this condition of righteousness that we have, is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And what does it lead to? It leads to us having peace. Peace with our hearts, peace with God, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that Jesus himself said, my peace I give unto you, not the kind of peace the world can give you, which is, you know, you had a nice day, you didn't have any trouble today. It was kind of a, a sweet moment, and it didn't rain. So you've got peace. That's the kind of peace the world gives you. He says, I'm going to give you a peace that the world can't give you. I'm going to give you my peace. My peace in relationship to my Father, the kind of relationship I have with my Father, I'm going to give that to you. The kind of peace that I have within my own heart, 
That's the peace I'm going to bestow upon you. A peace that's imperturbable in the midst of any storm you're facing. A peace that can't be shaken. A peace that can't be produced by man. It can only be bestowed by God. So the sets of stage he bestows righteousness. The terms are grace that leads to peace. But thirdly, he talks about now, what does that lead to? We think, okay, I got righteous, that's good, got that part of it, right? Jesus died for me on the cross, I'm forgiven. And I got grace, that means the undeserved, unmerited favor is mine, I, I accept that. And because of that, now I have peace with God, I'm accepted in him. But again, if we stop there, we've missed the entire second half of the equation, If we stop there, we're now saying, okay, I'm righteous in Christ. It came by grace. It's resulted in peace. So now I'm going to go and be a good person, try my best, and I'm somehow going to escape the corruption that's in this world by my efforts and my energy, by my commitments and my devotion. But you see, that's not what it leads to. The righteousness, the grace, and the peace, what do they lead to? They lead to his divine power. Look what he says to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. You see, what it leads to is not to us. It leads to him. His righteousness given to us, his grace given to us, his peace given to us does not lead to us now. It leads to him. It leads to his divine power. The whole second part of the equation, as a matter of fact, the whole reason why this happened is so that this could happen. This did not happen to then lead us back to our capacity, our ability, our strength, our determination, our will, now being put to work to try and manage and harness our flesh to act like Jesus. That was not the intent. The intent was that it would lead to his divine power, his divine power giving us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. You see, what it leads to is our our understanding that what he did for us was not something he did for us so that then we could do something for him, but that he did something for us so that he could then do something in us and through us that we couldn't do for him. In the same way we couldn't do this for him to get ourselves righteous, to make ourselves merit and be worthy of grace, to position ourselves to have peace. We couldn't do that. He had to do that for us. What makes us think now, having done that, that we're now, we we can kick it from here, Lord? I don't know. I look at myself in the mirror every day. Maybe you don't. I know this guy. This is not a life you can produce. That's why you need his divine power to do it. The Greek word is the Greek word dunamis. It's a word that we get dynamic from. It's the word we get dynamite from. It means an inherent strength and ability that exists within the thing being described itself. 
In other words, he doesn't bestow upon us a power apart from himself. Like here, I've got a battery that's, got, that's full of power now that I've made you righteous and I've given you grace and I've established you in peace relationship. Now I'm going to give you the battery power apart from me. And now you can run on that from now on. No, you see, it's his divine power. It's inherent in him. The only way he can give it to us is to give, him, give us himself. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 5 and 11, 12, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And that life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I could say to you equally as well, this is the testimony God has given us his divine power. And that divine power is in his son. He who has the son has divine power. He who doesn't have the son doesn't have divine power. He doesn't take it and give it to you apart from himself. You know, I can play the piano, I can play the guitar. I'm not doing it right now, and you should be thankful for that. But here's the thing. That's a gift that resides in me. I can't give it to you and then walk out of the room and leave it behind. If you don't have me, you don't have it. If you've got me, you've got it even when I'm not using it. Because it's not something separate from me, it's a part of me. Well, the life that Christ came to give us is not a life that he gives us like wraps up in a package. Here's eternal life. There, you've got it now. I'll see you in heaven. No, the only way he can give us eternal life is to connect us to him. The only way we can live in his divine power is to be connected to his life and his power. And so it's his divine power that he has given us that gives and takes care of all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if you take a piece of paper and you write life over here and godliness over here, and then on top of that write all things, then you figure out what doesn't fit in those categories. That's what God's power is not available to you to do. You see, what he calls us to through his righteousness bearing our sin, his grace offering us righteousness, his peace, the result of our reception of it, is he now offers us his divine power for every situation of our life that pertains to life or godliness. He, in other words, he plans to go along on the ride with you. He didn't just come, die, offer you grace. Now you got it. I'll see you in heaven. Now live your life for me. And try not to bother me too much about it. See, that's not the proposition. That's not the God we serve. His greatest joy is to take up residence inside of us, to be a part of every part of our life, and to express his life through us. Righteousness sets the stage. Grace and peace are the, grace and peace are the terms. This picture of his inherent power provides the dynamic the knowledge of him, the knowledge of him, not the knowledge about him, but the knowledge of him reveals the promises. Look what he says there. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him 
who called us by glory and virtue, by which, by which, what's he talking about? By which this knowledge, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. You see, when we begin to study not about him, but study him, when we become conscious of who he is, what he's like, what he's capable of, what he can accomplish, when we get our eyes off of ourselves, what we can't do, what we're not, who we aren't, what we can't accomplish, where we are falling short, how we failed, how we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, grit our teeth, try harder to be better people for Jesus. And instead of doing that, we look unto Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We start to focus on who he is, what he can do, what he has accomplished, what he's capable of, what his character is, what his nature is, what his power can do. When we get focused on him, we lift our eyes off of the depressing impossibilities of our incapability into the extraordinary, remarkable power and fathomless capacity of who he is, and we become students of his life and realize that that life that we're becoming students of is in us. All of a sudden, a new prospect starts to open up. Instead of this dry, dead, boring, dusty religiosity that so many people in the world have settled for, we suddenly begin to realize that this is just not another do-gooders club of people gathered around thankful for some good principles and doing our very best to live them out. Instead, we realize this is an invitation into a new creation, into becoming connected to the very life of Christ himself, into becoming containers, vessels of his life, and becoming so in such a way that as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, that we become treasure chests to the treasure of his life. And he puts this treasure of his life in these broken, cracked pots, earthenware, So that, these are his words, Paul speaking, Corinthians chapter 4, so that the excellency of the power would be of God and not of us. So that his life would be manifested, he says, in our mortal bodies. Not us doing a cheap invitation of trying to act like him, but us actually becoming containers and instruments of his very life. How does that come? It comes as we begin to understand these exceedingly great and precious promises. And as we think about these exceedingly great and precious promises, it comes through our knowledge of him. You know, I love the fact that Paul the Apostle says there's a mystery. I call it God's greatest secret because it was hidden from before the foundations of the earth and was only revealed around the time of Paul the Apostle in its full measure. A secret that's been hidden since before the foundations of the earth, but has now been revealed, he says. Colossians 1, verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says these words, which I love as a preacher. Him we preach. Most of the sermons when I was growing up, I heard, were me. You need to, you should, you didn't, you ought to. You should feel bad about not. 
You, 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 you. This is what you need to be doing for the Lord. But Paul said, I've discovered a secret, which is that Christ in me is my hope of glory. I stopped preaching me and you. I'm preaching him. Who he is, what he is. Because he can do what I can't do. He is what I'm not. What I am, he's not. What I don't know, he knows. What I can't accomplish, he can accomplish. What I don't understand, he understands. All of the things that are missing in me are complete in him. And the Bible says I'm complete in him now as a result of his life coming inside of me. In other words, what I have been given access to is not just to a new condition, undeserved and unmerited favor, a right relationship and peace with God so that now I have to go out in the strength of my own capacity and try my very best to live up to this calling of what I see here. No, he did this so that he could give me access to his divine power so that he could reveal who he is to me and then ultimately so that union with the Christ would effect this liberation This freedom that we seek, look how he says it there, that through these, these exceeding great and precious promises that we learn by studying him, through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, liberation, freedom is the goal. But if I set out from here to get to the goal of experiencing freedom and liberation in my life. But I think that the pathway is, yes, Jesus died for me, now I'm righteous. Yes, I didn't earn it to deserve it, I've got grace. Yes, I now have peace with God. Now by the determination of my human will and the strength of my character and my recommitment to these New Year's resolutions, I'm going to do everything in my power to escape the corruption that's in this world and to handle life and to be godly. I, I, I'm, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're on a certain road to failure. But if on the other hand, I understand that I was made righteous by the extraordinary offering of the Son of the living God and the shedding of His blood in order that I might be given the opportunity to receive an undeserved, unmerited standing in favor with God that would grant me peace so that... I would then qualify for his divine power and life to come and take up residence on the inside of me that I could be grafted into the vine of who he is that then I could become a student not of what I'm not but of what he is and become more and more willing to relinquish the control of my life to the power of his life so that ultimately I become a partaker of his divine nature. The word partaker there, it's the Greek word koinonos. It means to be in fellowship with. It means to be in family relationship. And his, his divine nature, the word for divine nature here, it literally means uh, godlike divinity, God's own native disposition. Here's what it means. The sum of innate properties and powers by which one person differs from others. Natural characteristics to that individual. Natural strength as opposed to what is produced by the art of man. In other words, I become a partaker of what? I become a partaker of the innate properties and powers that he holds. And as a result, his natural characteristics, his natural strength, as opposed to what I could produce by the art of my ingenuity, is what then becomes available to me, and I become a partaker of it. 
Paul the Apostle, again, Galatians 2.20, said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Don't get mistaken to think I'm not here. I'm here, very much here. But he said, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not living in faith by what I can do for him. I, as I've experienced his righteousness, his grace, his peace, now I've become a container of his power. Now I've begun to understand the promises of who he is in me. I now am becoming more and more a partaker of his uh, divine nature and allowing him to live through me, and I get to go along for the ride and see the miracle of what he can do that I could never have done for him. You see, this is how we escape the corruption that's in the world, through lust. Not by gritting our teeth and trying harder, but by relinquishing control sooner to the power of his life. By the way, the Bible says it in Galatians chapter 6 when it says, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life, zoe. What is life? Eternal life, zoe. It's the life that God himself possesses. It's not biological life, bios. It's not lifestyle, suke. It's the very life that God himself possesses, zoe in the Greek. If I sow to the flesh, in other words, if I try and get my flesh to act like Jesus, I'm going to reap from that corruption. That means decay. The word literally means, uh, it means a kind of decay. It means, it means a, 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 a disorientation. It means uh, to be in ruin. It, it means to perish, to decompose. In other words, the, 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 the outward influences of this world have the capacity to do things to my flesh, through my flesh, that result in ruin and decomposition and, and the, and the the destruction of my intent, though my heart desires it, if I'm sowing to the flesh, trying to get this done by the flesh, it's going to bring about corruption. But if I sow to the Spirit, to the life of Christ in me, if I say, Lord, what I can't do, you can do. What I can't control, you can control. What I can't say no to, you can say no to. What I can't accomplish, you can accomplish. So I'm going to quit trying to act like you and ask you to act, to live, to express your life, to be through me what I could never be for you. When I do that, I reap his very life. That becomes the result. And I escape the corruption that's in this world through lust. The Greek word for lust is epithumia. It means, thumos is the root word, it means to breathe hard. Like a bull, think about a bull pawing the ground, that's thumos, okay? And epithumia means toward something. So when you put the two together, it means to breathe hard in the direction of something, lust. We think of it as being sexual. But in fact, though sexual lust is a part of it, the word lust literally means to be agitated about something. You can have mental agitation, racing thoughts that you can't quiet, you can't still. You can have willful agitation, which is anger and explosions of, of wrath. You can have emotional agitation, which is worry and fear and depression. How do you escape the corruption that's in this world that tries to play upon our mind and our will and our emotions and our passions and our appetites, do you think you can do it by trying harder to act like Jesus? Why would we even want to do that when he himself is in us? 
If any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, the Bible says. Christ in us is the hope of glory. If you then been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your affections on things above. For you are dead, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll appear with him in glory. Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So what is the picture here? In all conclusion, it means that if I want to get freed from the corrupting influences that play upon the agitations of my flesh, they may pull me into immorality, they may just pull me into anxiety and worry and fear and doubt, they may pull me into racing thoughts and confusion, it may pull me into anger and frustrated and reactionary living. If I want to escape how the world tries to corrupt my human flesh, if this is my goal so that I could be godly, so that I could experience the power of his life, so that I could actually manifest that life to which he has called me here. I have to get away from this idea forever, permanently, and never return that the call of the Christian is that Jesus died for you so that you could live for him. He died for you so that he could come and take residence inside of you, so that he could live through you And by the power of his life, you could escape the corruption that's in this world through the agitations that try and bring destructive forces into your life. Branches don't do very well apart from vines, no matter how well-intentioned they may be. They have no source of life, so they can produce no fruit. The whole of my life at this point, after 40 years of being a pastor, is dedicated to just one thing, trying to get people from this paradigm to this one. (laughs) Because if you ever get over here, life will no longer be a dusty religious journey of an infinite number of things that you're not doing for Jesus. Instead, it will become a great, extraordinary, remarkable journey into sea every day what it is that Christ can do and wants to do through you. And man, what a difference it can make.